This is the John Oakley Show podcast. Looks like a wealth of studies sort of coming out concurrently here, and uh, we drilled down on one. Had to do with the uh, first overview from Ruben Devlin on healthcare and hallway medicine in Ontario. And now it turns out Ontario's financial accountability officer has just come out with a report, Income in Ontario, Growth, Distribution and Mobility. It's an assessment of the personal income of Ontarians and the extent to which their material standard of living is either improving or not. Let's find out about the devil in the details. Peter Weltman is Ontario's financial accountability officer, and he's joined the Oakley Show this afternoon. Mr. Weltman, good to have you on board. Good afternoon. Great to be here. Well, tell Thanks me that. Me. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in a nutshell, uh, what did you find? Well, we found a lot of things, and that's the problem with this report. But in a nutshell, I think the biggest finding is that uh, income growth, family income growth in Ontario, has significantly lagged that of the rest of the country. And kind of what that means is, and we, 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 deep, we get in a little deeper into the report, you start to realize that, you know, when I was a kid, Ontario was the economic engine of Canada. It's not the economic engine of Canada any longer. So, uh, in fact, you say it's even, uh, well, to put it into perspective, uh, the growth of median income for Ontario families and unattached individuals was the slowest in Canada by a wide margin. Yes, by a wide margin. So what's happened is, uh, effectively, the other provinces have caught up. So everybody's still doing okay. Ontario still has the third highest uh, median family income in the country, but it's not... Uh, the, the, the gap isn't nearly what it used to be. So, yes, that's what's happened. Everybody else is caught up. Okay. Well, I'll add again to that. Since 2000, you go on to say, uh, yeah. working-age singles and single-parent families actually experienced outright declines. They have, yes. So this really yeah. is uh, counter to this idea of upward social mobility or income mobility, right? Well, we're seeing that uh, it's trending to becoming less mobile, if you will. So income mobility is a bit of an interesting concept, but it's the idea of the ability for somebody who's in a lower income bracket to essentially raise their income, their ability to, 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 to find jobs or find work that can raise their, their income. And we're finding that since 2000, that ability is less, especially amongst the lower-income uh, quartiles, quintiles. Yeah, well, and that's interesting because historically, broken down into quintiles, like, you know, uh, into five segments, 20% yep. each, uh, usually, you know, even high-income earners after a certain stage, they drop back a quintile or two because they're retired. They're not drawing the same kind of salary or wages or whatever. And people, you know, in their teens or early 20s and whatever, in the lower quintile, suddenly, you know, they graduate, they get into a job, they bounce up into the next one, and so on and so forth. I mean, it's sort of a natural progression progression of things, but you're saying that now has become more static. It has become more static, and that's what, that's what the numbers show. So it's still, it's still pretty good. I mean, we're still basically on par with the rest of the country. And relative to other countries, developed economies, we're in pretty good shape there. So it's not a, a terrible story. It's just that we're seeing a trend, and that trend is, is going effectively the wrong way. All right, and so you've taken this snapshot right now, or uh, since 2000, do you address why, the hows and whys? We don't get too much into that. What we try to do is identify some of the key changes that have happened. So one of the key changes is the composition of work and of the labor market in Ontario, and the biggest change there has been the significant decline in the manufacturing sector and in the goods producing sector more generally. So all of the employment growth in Ontario 
pretty much has happened in the service sector. And the, the goods producing sector has basically been stagnant for the last number of years, almost, almost two decades. <clears throat> so that's part of what's happening. Now, to relate that to, this, to the stagnation and growth, it's, the link isn't quite there, but that's part of what's happened. The other part of what's happened is um, you've seen an increase in the number of what we call precarious employment, so temporary employment, part-time work, contract work, that sort of thing, and a bit of a reduction in full-time work. So some of those have an impact on the slowing uh, income growth. So those structural changes uh, that I mentioned are common amongst other developed countries, not just us. Everybody's been, been going through that. And there's just a readjustment happening. So we see in some of the work that some of the specialist, high, you know, the high-paid specialist jobs, scientists or management or that sort of thing, those folks have done, have done better in terms of income growth. And those folks in the middle have more or less stayed stay the same. And then the lower end, uh, retail, wholesale, warehousing, that sort of thing, those incomes uh, have been pretty stagnant. You know, it's interesting because when we get employment uh, numbers that come out periodically and talk about job creation or, you know, the loss of jobs or whatever, uh, but this is really the devil in the details because uh, the standard of living or the wage component have wages actually improved. Uh, and this is what your snapshot tends to be suggesting. Again, Peter Weltman's with us, Ontario's Financial Accountability Officer. This report that's just been released assessing the personal income of Ontarians, and uh, it doesn't look good. We're not trending in the right way. Uh, in fact, we're the slowest in Canada by a wide margin when it comes to uh, income distribution. And what you do go on to say as well is uh, this distribution of income before taxes and government transfers has become more unequal in Ontario, but tax and transfer system uh, the transfer system has played a key role in supporting low-income families and stabilizing the inequality. So, in other words, the government uh, throwing a lifeline to folks in the lower-income brackets. That's right, and we've seen that through a series of government policies over the years. Certainly, tax cuts on middle for middle and lower-income uh, families. Uh, we've seen, uh, you know, the, the traditional transfer programs like employment insurance and Canada Pension Plan and old age security and social programs in Ontario have all played a role in equalizing, you know, more or less that, that distribution. So, so the tax and transfer system is doing what we effectively designed it to do, which is to try to, to redistribute incomes to provide a little bit more to those in the lower income brackets. Well, is your report then suggesting or maybe just intimating that there is a role of government to be more proactive in these cases like... Uh, there's a minimum wage debate that's taken place and continues. Uh, the basic income pilot uh, that is going to end after two years come March, and some people are protesting about that, even taking it to the court. Uh, are there any suggestions coming from your office as to the merits of those? We don't do that. I mean, and that's always a frustrating piece. That's not what we... What we've done, and I think what we've tried to do, is provide a bit of a reference point for those folks in government, whether they are, you know, politicians or government, to say, here's where we are, here's what this, you know, the snapshot has looked like over the past 15, 17 years. Uh, these are the trends, and now it's up to you, government, every public, MPPs who represent constituents, to get involved and start to debate and discuss policies that can address some of these trends if you think they are worth addressing. So we stop short of, of you know, providing any advice or recommendations, and that's, that's the nature of our, of our work.
All right. So it could be some red flags or uh, just a, a primer to take these uh, items under consider, into consideration or under advisement. Well, I think that's what it is. It's a primer, and it's sort of like, here we are, and you guys have to decide where to go from here. All right. Uh, well, I appreciate that, then. We'll leave it at that. Uh, okay. Really good to talk to you about your report, Peter. Thanks for your time. Great to talk to you, too. Thank you. You got it. Peter Weltman, again, is Ontario's Financial Accountability Officer. This, needless to say, will ri- arise as a topic worthy of discussion in our next hour. Uh, we do have uh, two people from the left, our friend Tom Parkin, uh, who's a columnist with a bluntly social democratic point of view, and David Wills, the senior vice president of Media Profile, and uh, then there's John Carmichael. He'll be sort of <laughs> the swing panelist who will have to uh, defend conservative policies going forward. Needless to say, uh, the whole issue with well, hallway medicine and the report that surfaced earlier today in a leaked document, so the NDP says, and Christine Elliott, the health minister in the province, spoke to that within the last hour and uh, didn't deny that this was something, it was a draft bill. And uh, the point is, it shows that uh, there is a plan to scrap regional health agencies. The LINs. Well, you know, this is the government looking for inefficiencies. They're looking for ways of... Uh, what, <sighs> leakage in an overall system that can't continue to be sustained. That's why we had the earlier conversation in the hour about opening up the conversation to the practical consideration of needing uh, privatization in the system to some extent. Otherwise, we're just going to be trying to, uh, well, put fingers in the dike and springing leaks everywhere. And hallway medicine means, as Reuben Devlin, the premier's point man on this whole thing, found a thousand people languishing in hallways with an average wait of 16 hours before they were put into a room. That's average. Some cases, I can tell you anecdotally, stories that are a couple of days waiting out there with just a curtain drawn around you and everybody can hear you uh, expressing your medical history within earshot. Or they bring in some guy who's high and he's, uh, you know, tripping out and he's screaming. They're putting him into the padded room, but it's really disconcerting for the other folks who are going to kind of quivering pats out there on the gurney in the hallway where, you know, nurses are coming and going, playing a little cribbage on the side. You're hoping to get their attention. Oh, no, don't get me started. It really pisses me off. i got to be honest with you. And I think the system, this is why we've never been allowed to have that conversation. I think Ford is going to tear the thin veneer of uh, pretend world-class health care and uh, drill down on it. And it's necessary to do. And I was suggesting something else to add to this. You talk about intersectionality here, right? Um, Where, yeah, there's a word uh, I haven't heard since uh, somebody visited us from Ryerson, where it's now quite uh, liberally bandied bandied about the hallways. But no, uh, we also have this thing that the liberals yesterday, uh, they tried, I guess, or Monday, uh, to go online, to set up an online application process for folks who wanted to be reunited with parents and grandparents, bring them over into this country and make them permanent residents. If you've got like the anchor sibling or relative, and uh, so they opened it up for applications and they had to shut it down in 10 minutes because it broke the internet, 27,000 applications. Now you've got immigration lawyers and family members, they're all ticked off, they gotta wait another year. The backlog is such that some people have been waiting for eight years to get their families here. My question though, if these are parents and grandparents, can we afford to do this? Should we reconsider? And, and look, I see the upside in the sense that uh, some people are more perhaps productive and uh, with family support and the family 
grandparents will look after the kids, don't need to put them into daycare and that kind of whole thing. So I'm going to ask you quickly in the time that we have here before we get to the news at the top of the hour, this whole family reunification system, should we reconsider? Is it a net benefit to Canada or a drain on social services? Is that something that we need to have an adult conversation about as well? Let's hear from you. I think they uh, bring in about 10000 on an annual basis. There had even been suggestions made to uh, lift that number and let everybody apply, and then they go through the whole thing, uh, the processing, and maybe more than 10000 on an annual basis, or reconsider and put the brakes on this until we can actually rationalize our own social services. Thanks for listening to the John Oakley Show podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and anywhere else you get your on-demand audio.